0: You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out Frankfurt.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, we're also going to be in Luke 23. So, Matthew 26, verse, we're going to be beginning at verse 36. Luke 23, we're going to be beginning there at verse 32. We're wrapping up today this little four-part series that we did in August uh, about how prayer changes us. So we've been looking at uh, different pieces of Scripture and how it speaks about prayer, but more specifically about how prayer changes us. We so often go into a moment of prayer thinking, I'm going to pray to God that God changes this or that God changes them. But really, prayer is as much about God changing us. Week one, we looked at a section of scripture that talked about uh, prayer, that when we stand praying, we remember we have someone, something against someone, that we forgive them, that we forgive them in that moment of praying. Week two, we looked at um, a passage of scripture that talked about us praying for and loving our enemies. It's easy to pray for and love people who love you back. It's a little more difficult to pray for and love people who are your enemies. And yet scripture says that, commands that of those of us who say we're disciples of Jesus. And then last week we talked about prayer that changes us, that moves us to trade our anxiety, our worry for the peace of God. And to let that peace of God uh, come over top of us. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two pieces of scripture, two passages where Jesus is praying. And we're going to see how in these moments, in these prayers, Jesus really exemplifies, encapsulates, pulls together all the things we've talked about over the last three weeks. In other words, he takes what the scriptures have commanded us to do and challenged us to do, and he actually does those himself as our example. So Matthew 26, 36 through 46, if you will follow along with me, please, as we look at the first prayer of Jesus. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest. Later on, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is Jesus' great prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark records this in Mark chapter 14. Luke records this in Luke 22. Now, when Luke records it, he calls it the prayer at the Mount of Olives. That's not a contradiction. Gethsemane is just a word that means an olive press. So at the foot of the Mount of Olives would have been a place where they would have harvested the olives and pressed them out to receive the oil that they needed. So Luke is not contradicting Matthew and Mark when he mentions that it's the Mount of Olives and does not call it the Garden of Gethsemane. John does not record this specific prayer, but John does say in his gospel in chapter 18, verse 1, that there is a garden that Jesus and his disciples enter into in those final moments. So all four of the Gospels record this event. And Matthew, along with Mark, records that Jesus was deeply grieved as he entered into the garden. That word in Matthew 26, in verses 37 and 38, the word Troubled. Uh, Maybe in your scripture it says very heavy or distressed. But the result result of that is that it's a word that means to be deep in anxiety. That Jesus was very sorrowful and troubled. He was very deeply grieved and very anxious about what was coming on. And one of the things we looked at the last three weeks was, particularly last week, right? Trading our anxiety for the peace of God. This is what Jesus is doing in this prayer. He comes into it sorrowful, troubled, anxious. He's going to come out of it with the peace of God. The New American Commentary makes an interesting point, I think, that Jesus had this sorrow and he had this anxiety or this distress, not only because of the physical toll he would suffer, but also the spiritual toll that he was about to undertake. They they write in their commentary on this passage, spiritually, he recognizes the even greater agony in bearing the sins of the world. Just just think about that, consider that for a moment. We often talk of, and rightly so, the physical toll that Jesus took at the cross. But I don't know that we've really deeply examined the spiritual toll of what it meant to be a person who knew no sin and had never committed a sin in their life to take on the full brunt of the sins of the entire world. What John said about him in his gospel, right? Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. It's what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. As he talks about us being ambassadors. He says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin. 1 Peter 2, he recognizes that as well. That Christ became the full pleasure, or the full measure of sin for us. And so the spiritual cost that Jesus was going to undertake was even greater than the physical cost. Many people throughout history have paid a physical cost for following Jesus. Persecution, imprisonment, beating, negligence, outcasts, even unto the point of death. Only Jesus has ever experienced a death Where one who had no sin took on all the sin. So why was he sorrowful? Why was he full of anxiety? Because of this that he was about to take. But look at how he prays here. In verse 39, the very first part, he prays the first of two prayers. The first is what I call the human prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You ever pray anything like that? Maybe not in those terms exactly, right? But God, if the diagnosis can be anything else, God, it, it, can 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 I not lose this job? Can we not be kicked out of this house? Can my my physical relationship with my family, my friends, whatever case be? But can it not? Can you can you heal it, Lord? Can it not be destroyed, Father? If there's any other way. Then this, can you step in and do something? I, I would dare say we've all prayed many prayers that way, haven't we? From lots of different situations, and it's so important for us here to see Jesus pray this we this way because this tells us that Jesus was fully human and fully dependent upon God. Yes, it's a mystery how Jesus could be God, the Son. And fully human at the same time. Yes, I don't think any of us will fully understand that this side of eternity. But here he clearly demonstrates his full humanity on display and his full dependence on God. Is it possible? And he acknowledges really in this prayer that it is possible by God. My Father, if it be possible. The way Luke or the way Mark records it is this way, I the Father All things are possible for you. And so it's not really even just that Jesus in his humanness is saying, Lord, if there's a different way, can it be? He's really saying to God, I know you can reverse this in an instant. I'll tell you today, there is nothing in your life or my life that God cannot overcome, reverse, stop, halt. Nothing. Nothing. There's no, there's no pain there's no suffering there's no lack of peace there's no economic situation there's no community situation there's no worldly national situation there's nothing that he cannot handle in an instant so why then does Jesus pray if you can do this and our hindsight being 2020 know that God does not stop it if God can do it why doesn't he stop it well I would say one thing we learn here from Jesus' prayer is, as part of his humanity, he had to be fully submissive to God. If you could change this, Father, if you could take this cup, that'd be great. But look at what he then says. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I would really love for you to reverse this situation, God. I would really love for you to change this. In my life, in my family's life, in our world's life, in the life of our world. But nevertheless, meaning if you choose not to, not as I will, but as you will. Yielding to God is not only a yielding of our physical self. Yielding to God is a yielding of our spiritual selves. To say to him, in all these situations, your will will. Is more important than mine. Where have where we heard similar words before? Well when Jesus teaches on prayer in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. I think this is very unique. Because in the early moments of Jesus. Physical earthly ministry. He has this moment where he teaches on prayer. And he says. What well, Part of your prayer to God should be your kingdom come and your will be done. And so in the very early moments he teaches to his followers then and now that's today, to pray that way, in the very closing moments of his life, he actually does that. In other words, he says, I'm not just teaching you to do this. I'm not just teaching you to pray this way and accept that for your life. I'm going to do what I've told you you need to do. That God, your will over mine, be done. His full submission to the Father is front and center here. And so I think this helps us to to answer the question then of why. Why why does Jesus not have this cup removed from him? I I think in some cases, not, not in all cases necessarily, but I think in some cases God does not change the things around us because he's still looking for our full submission to him. He's still looking for us to love him for who he is, not to love him for what he does. It is not true love. Make make some people mad today, we'll see. It is not true love to love somebody solely for what they do for you. It is true love to love somebody for who they are, their character, their person, uh, who, the, who they are in their, in their spirit and their mind and their heart and their actions and their ways and their words. And so God, I think sometimes we say a similar prayer. God, could you just do something different here? And in some cases, I'm not going to say in every case, but I think in some cases God says no because he's still looking for us to fully submit to him, even especially when things don't go our way. And here, Jesus is demonstrating that full human submission to God. He's demonstrating this understanding that God's will is greater than the earthly fulfillment of our request. And God's will is greater than the earthly fulfillment of our request because the earth is not what we anticipate. It's not what we long for. This earth is fallen, steeped in sin, Destined for an end result that's not going to be pretty. But we long for eternity. And Jesus demonstrates here in this prayer is trading his anxiety for peace of trusting in God fully. And there's a second prayer I want us to look at today as well. Look over at Luke 23 where I had you <clears throat> turn to earlier. Luke 23, 32 through 38. Luke records it this way, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up with sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. That one little section where Jesus speaks, right there in the middle or close to the middle in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. This is the second great prayer of Jesus. Now, you might look think, was it really a prayer? Well, what is prayer but submitting before the Lord? What is prayer but asking God to do something? What is prayer but putting your your for yourself and situations that you're in before the Father and, and making a request that He do something? Jesus may not have bowed His head and closed His eyes, but this is a prayer. And not only is it a prayer, but it's a prayer for forgiveness. And not only is it a prayer for forgiveness, it's a prayer for forgiveness of His enemies in that moment of the soldiers who were crucifying Him, of the crowds that were crying out for His death, of the rulers who were mocking Him. And over and over, what we see in the life of Jesus is He demonstrates, He practices what He preached. Again, I'm going to go back to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Uh, later in that, in Jesus' response to Matthew six fourteen and 15, he changes it from debts to trespasses, but it's a word that means sin. And he says that we should pray in this way, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sin against us. Jesus had no need to ask for forgiveness of his sin, but yet he fulfills the second part of the teaching by asking for forgiveness of those who are in that moment sinning against him. Now, the, the Lord's Prayer is not our focus today, but I have to include this. Augustine called that part of the prayer the terrible petition. Because he said this, if we pray, forgive us as we have also forgiven. And we have not forgiven. We are essentially praying for God to hold our sin against us. Kent Hughes in his commentary states this, Sometimes our unforgiving hearts make our prayers die on our lips. Jesus had no sin to forgive, but He demonstrates in this prayer recorded in Luke's Gospel, He demonstrates the second part of that teaching. He forgives those who have sinned against Him. If He forgave those who whipped Him, who stripped Him, who paraded Him through the streets, who drove nails into His hands and His feet, who hung Him on a cross with with a crown of thorns, if He forgives those who were mocking Him, who were jeering Him, if He forgives the rulers who He came to save their nation for turning Him over, If he forgives all of those people, what could anybody possibly do to you or me to have us withhold forgiveness from them? Here's our response, isn't it? Well, but you don't know. I have searched the scriptures for the but you don't know loophole. And I can't find it. Jesus doesn't give us a but you don't know. You don't know the pain that they cause. You don't know the suffering. You don't know the the trauma. You You don't know how to... No! Jesus says, forgive your enemies. And not only does Jesus say to forgive your enemies, and that's carried through the New Testament writings, He does it. He fulfills it. Now, I have to say, though, there's this really kind of unique piece in this request that He makes. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Really? They didn't know? They had not as, as soldiers received their marching orders to, to carry out this crucifixion. They, they had not as religious rulers and leaders of the day condemned him to death through the Roman system of execution. They, they, they had not the crowds cried out, release to us Barabbas and away with this man Jesus. They didn't know? Jesus says, forgive them, for they don't know. What could he possibly mean there? The Holman commentary on this passage is this, neither Jewish accuser nor Roman executor fully realized the gravity or the depth of their actions. Simply put, Jesus offers them forgiveness because in that moment, they really did not fully know who it was they were hanging on that cross. Now, that, that's a theme that continues on into the book of Acts. In Acts two, thirty-six, as Peter begins to wrap up his great sermon there at Pentecost, he says this in Acts two, thirty-six Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, as he's wrapping it up, he says, You may not have known, but now you know. In Acts three, seventeen through twenty-one, as Peter is speaking in the porch of Solomon, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that may he, he may send the Christ appointed for you. In Acts 13, another place where it's begin uh, to work out in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 26-28. The words of Paul, brothers, son of the sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. So the Bible makes this this teaching. Stephen, when when Stephen's being stoned to death in Acts chapter seven. What what does he cry out? He mimics the cry of Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Why? Because they did not know what they were doing. They did not know the full extent of who they were killing. I'll say to you, sometimes, not all the time, but I think sometimes people don't know the full extent of the harm they do to you or me. Now, Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're just very evil people who have a motive and, and have a goal and, and they, they, they have a, uh, an end game in mind and, and they know exactly what they're doing to you. But I think the majority of the time, most people really don't know the full extent of the harm that they do to you and to me. They don't often see the full extent of the pain and the suffering, the sleepless nights and the high blood pressure and the not wanting to eat and the losing the weight and the trauma and everything else that sometimes you and I experience at the hands of others. They're ignorant. Ignorant is not an insult. It means they lack knowledge. And they're ignorant of what they do to you and me. But in this moment, what Jesus said is even though they were ignorant even though they lacked knowledge, even though they did not fully understand who it was they were hanging on that cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We we love to quote John 14, 6, don't we? Particularly when we talk about the exclusivity of Christ among all other religions. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and that's a, that's a, an ideal way to use those words. That yes, Jesus is exclusive. His promise, His, His, His offering is open to everyone. He's not ex- exclusive in that He only allows some, but it is exclusive in that He is the way and the truth and the life. But, but I want us to see those words in a different context today. He is the way, the truth, and the life in that He shows us the way and He shows us the truth and He shows us what it means to have His life living in us in these prayers. He expects you and me who say we are Christians, which is to say we are disciples of Jesus, He expects us to live as He lived. He expects of us to do what he was willing to do himself. In Matthew 10, this passage where Jesus talks about a disciple not being above his teacher and a servant not being above his master. And uh, it's Verses 24 and 25, I actually want to read it out of the New Living today because I just like the simplicity of the way the New Living puts it. Students are not greater than their teachers. Slaves are not greater than their master. Students are to be like their teacher and slaves are to be like their master. And since I the household have been called the prince of demons the members of my household will be called by even worse names jesus doesn't say since since i've been persecuted you all get a pass jesus doesn't say since the world hates me they're going to fall in love with you jesus said if you belong to me you're you're not above me What I have experienced, you have experienced, but more to the point, what I have done, you should be doing. If you're a disciple, that's the claim you and I make that we're disciples of Jesus. He's our teacher. You and I claim this incredible gift of grace and forgiveness and mercy that's found at the cross, which the scripture means that we're no longer a slave to sin, but we are now a slave to righteousness. What that means is we now have a master, and his name is Jesus. And in these two prayers, he has shown us the way through anxiety, through sorrow, through distress, through enemies. He has shown us the way to pray, to ask for God's will to be done. To ask that we are changed and not the situation around us. And to ask for God to move incredibly in our lives. In his full human nature, he prayed, not my will, but yours. In his full human nature, he prayed, Lord, forgive them. One of the commentaries I read this week, and and I'll admit to you, I've kind of had to chew on this all week. <clears throat> made this statement. It said, "If anybody who's professing to be a Christian cannot pray for God's will over their own, will not pray for God's will over their own, cannot and will not pray for the forgiveness of their enemies?" This commentator wrote, "Are you even sure you're a Christian?" We bristle at that kind of stuff, don't we? Oh, but I walked an aisle when I was six and I went to all the BBSs. My my family's been in this church nine generations. We're not doing what Jesus said. More importantly, if we're not doing what Jesus modeled, are we really his disciples? Are there going to be hiccups? Sure. Are there going to be times where it's hard? Absolutely. Are there going to be times where we fail? You better believe it. But if we're not coming out of those times longing, striving, pleading with God to make us more like his son, are we really a disciple? We're going to remember the cross of Christ here in just a moment. And I usually give you something or a few questions to ponder, to think about. But today I just want to make it just really simple. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about trading in anxiety and worry for God's peace. We've talked about loving our enemies. We've talked about forgiving our enemies. We've talked about forgiving people who we know we have something against. Right? The first, very first week was not, well, they got something against me. It was, I got something against them. And It was forgiving them. Before you take of that which represents his body and his blood today. Before you take of that which represents the fullness of grace and mercy and forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Is there any of that that's still holding on in your life? A little corner here or there where, well, but if, if, I'm, if I'm not anxious about it, if I don't worry about it, it's like I don't care. i I, I, I really got to forgive fully. That, that loophole might come into your mind, right? But but you don't know. Mm-mm. Jesus doesn't give us a but you don't know. If there's any of that that's being held on in your life right now, release it before we come to the table of Christ. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt@gmail.com. at gmail.com.